Hi, I'm Damon Fairless, host of Hunting Warhead from CBC Podcasts and the Norwegian newspaper VG. Hunting Warhead follows a global team of police and journalists as they attempt to dismantle a massive network of predators on the dark web. Winner of the grand prize for best investigative reporting at the New York festivals and recommended by The Guardian, Vulture, and The Globe and Mail, you can find Hunting Warhead on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. All summer long, while white coat black art takes a break, we're bringing you the weekly podcast that answers your pressing health questions and helps you understand the latest health news. This week, I want to talk about something I've been thinking a lot about lately, contact tracing and COVID-19. It's really important now that we've begun to relax physical distancing. As we emerge from our COVID cloisters, public health officials say we need to be careful or we'll end up right back where we started. They say the best way to do that is testing, testing, and more testing to see who has the virus. And we need to trace people who test positive to find out who they've been in contact with in order to warn them. Turns out a big part of that involves smartphones and apps. This month, the federal government is launching its free voluntary contact tracing app. Ontario will be the first province to release the app, even as some people raise privacy concerns. So today on The Dose, we're asking the question, how do contact tracing apps work and what do I need to know about them? To help us answer that question, my guest is Dr. Prabhat Jha. Dr. Jha is the director of the Centre for Global Health Research at St. Michael's Hospital, and Professor of Epidemiology at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Dr. Prabhat Jha, welcome to The Dose. Good morning, Brian. So how do contact tracing apps work? They work on the premise that uh, people who test positive have to voluntarily enter the information into the phone. And by looking at who's close to that phone through Bluetooth connections, they're able to convey to others who have the app that you've been in contact with someone uh, reasonably close that might have had an infection. And then it's supposed to prompt those people to potentially get tested or uh, take other measures. So uh, just so that we're clear, how does the app know that, for example, I've tested positive for for COVID-19? It'll only know if you enter that information into the app. So it's um, th- there's two big conditions for the app. One, it involves people voluntarily putting in their positive status in if they've been tested. And the second, it works much better if it's got high coverage, meaning many, uh, almost all of the people in um, in a particular network, let's say in Toronto, would be using the phone, uh, the phone app. The experience from other settings uh, shows that if you don't get so many people using it, then it's not as effective as a as a surveillance tool. What percentage of the population has to use the app for it to be effective in a place like, say, Toronto? Well, that's a good question. We've uh, the, basically all these are just based on models, but they suggest something like upwards of 50 to 60% of people need to be users in a particular network. And let me define what that means. So if you take Toronto and say, well, our main concern is um, the frontline workers. And if you define that population, 
then uh, it would be about 60% of those people would need to to use it. Uh, for the whole population, as mentioned, if at low-risk populations aren't particularly going to benefit from uh, having access to the app. Uh, and it's also good to note when what what is the benefit of an app? Well, if it encourages people to get tested based upon possible exposures, that's a good thing. You outlined exactly the right strategy, which is test, test, test. But if the app encourages testing, that would be a good thing. But so far, we know only about 7% of of Canada's um, population uh, have been tested. Well, that's a crude number if you look at the overall numbers of tests divided by the Canadian population, it's 7%. But that includes some people who've had repeat tests. So if we want to raise the percentage of uh, Canadians that get testing, the app could help stratify a little bit on who's at higher risk, and those are the populations to get tested. And then once you get tested, then um, the considerations of, okay, if I've tested positive, I think most Canadians have been very good of saying what they need to do, which is you self-isolate at uh, usually at home unless you're very sick, in which case you're hospitalized. You make sure that you try to protect your family members. But that's very difficult if, you're, if you've probably been infected, then family members uh, do face a risk of getting infected, and they themselves should get tested. And uh, after two weeks of isolation, there's very clear evidence that the virus pretty much is gone. So after that, you're you're safe to move around and interact with other people. So if we think about an app, we have to think about it in the context of how does it help with sensible public health practices, uh, with practices, and it would involve, uh, I think, using the app or encouraging the app much more in frontline or higher risk populations, and in, and in raising testing rates. Those would be good things, but that'll all depend on how wide the coverage is. Um, the experience out of Iceland wasn't so positive. They found, for example, that uh, only something like 35% of the Iceland population took up a free app, and it wasn't very useful. The UK experience has been not so useful. On the other hand, the German experience has been more positive, uh, but I attribute that in part that in Germany they relied on a not just the app, but they also had people calling. And I think there's a human nature part of this, that if I get a call from a concerned public health official saying, you might have been exposed, we encourage you to get testing, I can interact with them, and it's a human voice that's assuring me to get tested. So I think the German results are because they had a lot of people on phones, that's uh, along with the app. We've heard uh, a fair amount about super spreaders, people with COVID-19 who seem to cause a lot of people to become infected. What role might contact tracing and the apps play in identifying super spreaders? The super spreading events are also linked to particular occupations or places of exposure, and we have to remember that. So a lot of the super spreader events have been described, for example, around choirs or um, religious gatherings uh, like uh, at churches. And that's because uh, you've got a lot of crowded people or you've got 
uh, an intense crowd uh, situation in a room. In the case of choirs, involves people singing, so they're actually projecting more uh, more of the virus out into uh, out into others. So the super spreader events have been linked mostly to those. Um, will the app help identify particular super spreaders? Unlikely, um, because it, it, there's so many ifs along the way that um, um, I, I don't think it'll be particularly helpful at identifying super spreaders. I We started to talk a little bit about privacy concerns, and that reminds me that a recent poll of Canadians found that over half disapproved of mandating a contact tracing app. Are we as Canadians too suspicious of the government for this app to even work? Well, I... Um, I think I mean there's it's in the context of overall privacy concerns and I think if you if you split that you'll find young people are way less concerned about privacy than our older uh, older Canadians. We have to have the right balance and on the whole I think that in a time of a pandemic where we've got pretty good evidence that uh people with uh symptoms can infect people who will not necessarily have symptoms, but they might in turn be spreading infection. Given we know about that chain of transmission, then I think on the whole, we should have more requirements to have everyone who's positive be reported um, and to perhaps be required to have the app. I'm not too concerned about the privacy concerns personally, because if the app is housed under safe um, offices of public health agencies. They're not working with commercial vendors to sell your information or others. So in that sense, I trust the government more than I would Apple or Google because, you know, they're kind of figuring out ways of monetizing it. You're listening to The Dose on CBC Radio 1. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. This week, I'm talking about contact tracing for COVID-19 with Dr. Prabhat Jha. Dr. Jha is the director of the Center for Global Health Research at St. Michael's Hospital and professor of epidemiology at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. When talking about the merits of apps for contact tracing, Dr. Jha says it's important to keep the big picture in mind. What is our objective for the pandemic? The main objective that we should have is to prevent deaths in older people. We know now that the main consequence of COVID infection has been a very unfortunate and sad situation where we've had several thousands of deaths in our nursing homes and in our seniors. And we know that seniors are the most vulnerable. So now I go back to saying, okay, as an individual, what do we do to prevent that happening? So I've got two older parents that live in North Toronto, and one has uh, medical issues. So I've had to keep seeing them to make sure that uh, they're okay. Now, in that context, I have an extra emphasis saying I can't get infected. Not so much that if I get infected, I'm younger and healthy. I might just have, you know, a terrible cold-like uh, illness for uh, a week or two, but I'll be okay for the most part. That's not to say everyone is like that, but most uh, most of the infections tend to be uh, generally mild and self-resolving. The main concern is protecting olders as uh, elder people. Uh, 
So if we add that in, then saying that if you're looking after older people or you're, for example, working at a nursing home, then you've got an extra obligation to say, how do I make sure that I'm protected? So in that case, I would use the app. I personally would use the app from that perspective saying, I've kept myself low risk um, from what I've done. I've also went and got tested um, as a precaution because I'm looking after the older, uh, my older parents. But I can use the app to see if I've got any exposure. And if I do have exposure, then the simple protocol I would say is, okay, I can't see them until I get tested and I'm clear. So if we build that kind of strategy in, then it's saying, you know, what is the war effort? Our war effort is to make sure that if infections occur, and they will as the economy opens, that we minimize the transmission into the elder population in whom it can be fatal. And if we think through that way, and that's the public health communication, I think most Canadians would be on board and saying, all right, um, I am taking a bit of a risk. Let's say all the very uh, brave employees working at Loblaws, although they have now the shields and the protective uh, equipment, they're still at higher risk than me sitting uh, in an office and going back and forth. So now the extra thing is if any of them on top of their work is looking after an elder person at home or they have an extra job at a nursing home or the equivalent, then they should absolutely have the tools to be even more diligent, which would involve the app, which would involve quick access to testing and sensible public health guidelines saying, if you're infected, then stay home. And the third thing, which on the whole I think we've done in Canada, is not punishing people who get uh, sick by losing wages. So if you're sick, you can stay at home and still earn money. I mean, those are the a, f- a few key pillars of a public health response where we would really try to decrease deaths. And particularly if we get a second wave, uh, I'm not so sure that we will get a second wave, but if we get a second wave, our core strategy should be really that. We're, we're not going to prevent a little bit of infection here and there in the general population uh, as much as we'd like to, uh, but we should absolutely focus on saying it stops entry into senior homes and into the seniors because they're the ones getting killed by it. I want to ask you a little bit about the low-tech method of of contact tracing. Yeah. All provinces are supposed to be doing that. Some have clearly done it better than others. I think I think British Columbia is a wonderful example of a province that 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 ramped up uh, the infrastructure. Uh, you know, people have emailed and phoned when they've been in contact with someone who's had a positive COVID nineteen test. And and I want to know how effective can this low tech form of contact tracing be? Low tech contact tracing can be really effective. Um, and uh, my bias is that that human touch, that voice at the other end, or a name to an email, actually makes a big difference in how people take and use the information. So in Germany, it's quite widely used. And I'll give you an example, uh, Brian, of really low-tech contact tracing, which was what my friend Rajesh Kumar, who's an epidemiologist in North India, did. So in 1994, India had a plague outbreak in the west of India, which was a disaster, that big economic loss. And they eventually got it under control. In 2001, there was another smaller outbreak in North India, 
And Rajesh Kumar was an epidemiologist like me at an academic university, was put in charge. He called up the premier, the equivalent of the premier, on a Saturday and said, uh, you have to take my call. And the guy was annoyed, says, why are you bugging me? He said, if you don't do things, you're going to have a problem on your hands. The premier panicked and said, what do you need? And Rajesh said, give me 200 people, 200 police officers, and phones. That's all I need. So what they did is they went to each of the places where a possible plague case had been identified, and uh, they asked, now this is the police asking, and uh, to be candid, they weren't very polite about it. They would ask you, where have you been? What have you contacted? And then they would, that police officer would stay outside and say, you're under quarantine for five days. You can't leave the house. They went to the next place, found whoever had been exposed, did the same, basically mandated their quarantine. So just with uh, this approach, asking who they've contacted, and no testing. At that time, they didn't have testing available. But just with this simple contact tracing and isolation, Rajesh was able to shut down the plague epidemic in North India. So it's a very powerful tool. Um, We've seen it in a much more draconian sense in the response in uh, China, in Hubei. There were basically people going door to door and looking for anyone that was uh, positive, and uh, sometimes they would just cordon off the whole building. Now, you don't need that level of uh, draconian response, uh, and it wouldn't be tolerated in Canada. But the core principles of finding who's been exposed and making sure that they're isolated for the infectious period is really effective. So low-tech does work. And for what it's worth, you see what happened down in Tulsa. All the Secret Service agents that were part of the uh, President Trump's rally uh, have been asked now to self-isolate because they were in potentially a hot spot. I don't know if they're testing, but they've been asked to self-isolate for a bit. I would hope they're testing. Yeah. Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Sharmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Sharmini Anandavale disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Sharmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. You're listening to The Dose on CBC Radio 1. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. This week, I'm talking about contact tracing for COVID-19 with Dr. Prabhat Jha. Dr. Jha is the director of the Center for Global Health Research at St. Michael's Hospital and professor of epidemiology at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. You're currently in the midst of a major study testing people for COVID-19 antibodies and hoping to learn more about how long we're immune to the disease after we get it and, and who's actually been infected. It, it's not the same as contact tracing. It's not at all the same as contact tracing, but it's related. And I want to know if you can talk a little bit about your research and how it, it relates to, to, to creating a bigger snapshot of how COVID-19 is affecting Canada along with contact tracing. Sure. So our uh, study called the ABC study, which is Action to Beat Coronavirus, but it also means antibodies against coronavirus, has a very simple goal. We want to know among a randomly selected uh, snapshot of 10,000 Canadians, adult Canadians, 
how many have been infected with the virus that causes COVID. And we did this in a real hurry uh, because, like you and and, uh, many other observers, we think that the peak of infection probably was in uh, the end of April in Canada. And antibodies, the the things that the body mounts to uh, fight the virus, typically take about a month to reach kind of what's detectable levels or steady levels. So that puts us at the end of May. Now, we don't know whether these antibodies fall quickly over time, which would be bad news for immunity, or they stick around. So we, fearing the worst, we said, let's not wait. And we started getting the kits out as of June, uh, June the 9th. So we've got 8,000 kits out, and now people are returning the samples to our lab where they'll be tested very carefully for antibodies. And what we want to know from that is very simple questions. How many Canadians infected? How many older Canadians infected? Does infection mean some protection against new infection? Because we'll be asking everyone to get retested in a few months. So we'll be able to establish whether having antibodies protects you from having uh, another infection or whether the antibody levels stay stay high. And because we've doing such a large sample across the country, we hope we'll be able to pick up what is also a key feature of of COVID, which are the clustering, right? So the, the chance of being infected, let's say in uh, Thompson, Manitoba, is going to be quite small, whereas in uh, Scarborough or a dense area of Toronto or in Montreal, you're going to have uh, much more infection uh, in the community. So the reason for doing quite a distributed sample across the country is that we then want to be able to pick up clusters. And that clustering of infection should feed into public health practices of identifying the areas that are at high risk, hopefully shaping the decisions on where testing sites need to go. I'm, our testing site where I sit in St. Michael's Hospital is just below me, which is really convenient. You know, we can pop down. But for the person working at a Loblaws out in Scarborough uh, and at slightly higher risk because of what they're doing, they should have as easy access. So thinking about having good test sites and where they're distributed, that's what the Koreans did. The South Koreans had a very good strategy of having test sites available really widely. And that combination, along with sensible public health guidelines, helping Canadians avoid all sorts of uh, misconceptions about the virus. And I'm afraid to say my epidemiological colleagues have been producing a lot of nonsense stuff that really confuses people, you know, that, oh, well, toilet seats are going to give you COVID, for example. Uh, you know, that was a doozy. I thought <laughs> that uh, you're not going to get a, a COVID infection unless you're licking toilet seats. <laughs> so uh, so we, I, my, my sense is that People, uh, particularly Canadians, are very good consumers of health information. If you give them intelligently what is the best science and pair it with good public health advice, they've just been exemplary, I think, mostly for how isolation has worked and the Canadian uh, uh, agreement for being able to, to get along. That's the reason we've got a much better handle on the uh, pandemic than in, in the U.S., for example. 
And and I'm guessing here that on the list of things we should be doing to fight COVID, uh, a contact tracing app as it's currently kind of formulated and, and figured out in this country is probably not at the top of your list, is it? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's useful. I, I don't want to speak against the app, but we've got to be careful that politicians and you know some media and others might say, oh, we've got to fix. There's no such thing. Public health is a good, careful grind, but it's hugely successful, as, as we've seen. We've, we've got lots of successes, uh, even in COVID right now. And I maintain the, main, the most important strategy we should have is to keep infection away from our seniors. And if we do that in the next round, the whole of Canada probably can withstand having um, a certain number of cases, particularly if our testing capacity is is up to uh, speed. And I do congratulate, I think, all the governments after Canada being a bit of a laggard on testing and Ontario being a bit of a laggard. They've really done terrific things to now make it um, reasonably accessible. There's still more to do, but uh, it's it's a nice success story that they were behind and they've caught up nicely. Prabhat Jha, thank you so much for speaking with me. I'm delighted. Thank you, Brian. Dr. Prabhat Jha is director of the Center for Global Health Research at St. Michael's Hospital, and he's professor of epidemiology at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Here's your dose of smart advice. As we relax physical distancing, we need to remain vigilant. That means lots of testing for COVID-19. And when a test is positive, it means tracing everyone who's been in contact with the infected person, warning them to practice physical distancing and to watch for symptoms of the virus. If you download a contact tracing app and if you test positive for the virus, it's crucial that you update your status on the app so it can do its thing and inform people you've been in contact with. But making contact tracing apps voluntary limits their usefulness. To be really effective, we want at least 50% of the population to use it. At the very least, apps should be adopted by people at high risk of getting COVID-19. And finally, apps are not a substitute for having public health workers who do the legwork of contact tracing. Contact tracing may seem like an unwanted intrusion into your privacy, but without it, there's little to stop an outbreak from getting out of control. At The Dose, we'll continue to bring you the latest information on COVID-19 and other health news with new episodes every other week, along with some recent episodes packed with information that you need. If you have topics you'd like to hear on The Dose, email us at thedose at cbc.ca. You can tweet me at NightShiftMD or at CBC White Coat. Remember to use the hashtag TheDoseCBC. You can find The Dose and White Coat Black Art wherever you get your podcasts. Please do us a solid and rate our shows so more people can find us. This episode of The Dose was produced by Jeff Goods with help from Sujata Berry and digital support from Fabiola Carletti. Thanks to Austin Pomeroy for his technical expertise. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.